Hello, and welcome to the next installment of the History Twins podcast. We are here today at the University of Chicago with Professor Stephen Pincus, whose work focuses on 17th and 18th century England, especially the Glorious Revolution. Professor Pincus's magnum opus is his 1688 First Modern Revolution, in which he argues that the Glorious Revolution was, contrary to centuries of historical thought, a violent, popular, and socially divisive affair, which affected long-lasting changes in England. He has also written A Nation Transformed, England After the Glorious Revolution, and Protestantism and Patriotism, Ideologies in the Making of English Foreign Policy, uh, focusing largely on the Anglo-Dutch Wars of the period. Uh, Professor Pincus, your focus is on, the is, uh, is on the Glorious Revolution, so we'll start with that. To begin with, who are the major actors of the Glorious Revolution, and what was the goal of each? Um, well, there's a large cast of characters, uh, but uh, one should start with uh, the kings, I guess. So uh, James II... Uh, um, was king of England until uh, until he was uh, deposed or was abdicated in 1689. Um, and James II was um, a committed Catholic. He was very interested in uh, re-Catholicizing uh, England, uh, but he was committed to a certain kind of Catholicism, one which was very associated with uh, the court of France. Um, uh, and it was one which was uh, Augustinian in nature, believing that... Um, uh, that people who had wrong beliefs did so willfully rather than uh, just because of their cultural uh, preferences. So James II was a major player. Um, uh, in many ways, the other major player who would become uh, King of England in 1689 is William III, Prince of Orange. Um, now, William uh, was uh, from a Dutch noble family. Um, his uh, um, father had been a stadtholder, meaning... Uh, person who held the place of king and captain general of the of uh, uh, the Dutch Republic until 16 uh, until 1650 when he died uh, of smallpox um, William um, uh, when he came of age in 1672 began to sort of lead and organize uh, a pan-european alliance against Louis the 14th king of France um, and uh, in England, he had a lot of political allies. He had a lot of political allies in part because um, he was married to uh, Mary, who was uh, the eldest daughter of uh, James II. Um, but he was also, uh, um, the families of the House of Orange, William's fa uh, family and the House of Stuart, the family of James, had intermarried for generations. So he was deeply enmeshed in many ways. Um, uh, in English uh, English affairs, um, so those are the kind of two, and he becomes uh, king in in, uh, in February of sixteen eighty nine. Now those are two of the major players, but there are lots of other players who who play a, a key role um, in the story. Um, first, and I've already mentioned him, Louis the Fourteenth, King of France, and he plays a king a key role uh, both because um, there was an alliance. Um, unofficial, according to many, perhaps official, um, uh, and secret with James II. Um, and Louis XIV was, I mean, was the Sun King, was uh, easily the sort of most powerful political player in Europe, and the fear of people like William of Orange was that Louis XIV was uh, on the brink of becoming hegemon in Europe, or in the language of the time, universal monarch. Uh, so he's a key player. He's a key player both because um, a lot of people feared his growing power, but also a key player because he was personally very supportive of uh, of James II. Um, now, there were lots of other sort of major uh, players in the story. Um, uh, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, William Sancroft, was somebody who, um, uh, a devout Protestant, somebody who, uh, who believed uh, absolutely that um, it was illegitimate for Protestants to resist their king, but he was also very concerned uh, that James II was going to Catholicize England. So his views, uh, his position was relatively ambivalent. Um, and then there were lots of, of political players, and uh, uh, lots of political players uh, in England I mean, England, after all, um, uh, had a long uh, parliamentary tradition, uh, a parliamentary tradition which had uh, become more robust 
are during the English Civil War, so the 1640s and 1650s. Um, and there were a lot of political players in England uh, who were very concerned uh, that James II might do away with Parliament, uh, which was uh, their political, uh, giving them their political role. And some of these uh, political players had, a, they were, there was a spectrum of political beliefs. Some of them were quite radical. Some of them even believed uh, were Republicans. Um, others were not Republicans at all, but were very concerned uh, with the political and economic direction in which the country was going. And how was it that the sovereign of England was a Catholic? I thought this was a century after Henry the Henry the Eighth. That's right. Um, so um, so uh, James. Uh, was um, the son of Charles I, King of England, who had been beheaded in uh, 1649. He was certainly brought up as a Protestant. Um, but um, after his father uh, was beheaded on January 30th, 1649, um, uh, uh, the entire family fled to the continent, uh, and James spent a fair amount of time in France. Yeah, um, Charles I's wife was France. Right? That's France right. Catholic. So his his mother Henrietta Maria was was a French Catholic, um, and uh, you know unsurprisingly, uh, given that his father was executed by the Parliament by a Protestant Parliament, uh, he began to sort of ask questions about you know maybe uh, Catholicism was a better religion for kings. Um, uh, so uh, and he spent time he spent a good deal of time in France, and then he was. Um, uh, reconciled to the Catholic Church in the 1660s by a French Jesuit um, by the name of Father Simenon. Um, um, uh, so, so he wasn't born, uh, he was born a Protestant. He was reconciled, that is to say, converted to the Catholic Church in the 1660s. Um, <clears throat> and in fact, that very uh, reconciliation put his own political future um, in question because a number of people in Parliament, reacted exactly as you did. You know, we are a Protestant country. We have been since the Reformation. We can't have a we can't have a Catholic king. So, in sixty between sixteen seventy nine and sixteen eighty one, um, uh, three parliaments uh, three parliaments passed bills called exclusion bills, which said we can't have a Catholic as king. So James will be passed over in the succession. Charles, his older brother, refused to sign the bills into law, and James survived and then became king in 1685, um, but there was already some sort of uh, political opposition. So the point of your 1688 is to argue for a revolutionary interpretation of the Glorious Revolution. Mm -hmm. Why is it that this is such a controversial thesis? Well, um, the reason why it's a controversial thesis is that um, from um, the really from the 1790s onwards during the French Revolution, um, uh, English and British historians began to argue um, in contradistinction. This began with Edmund Burke's Reflections on the Revolution in France. Burke said, um, what we did in 1688 bore no resemblance to what happened in France. Um, we were protecting um, uh, the Constitution, James II, was the innovator violating the Constitution. So what we had was a revolution which didn't change any English law. So unlike the French Revolution, which eviscerated uh, 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 French law in a variety of ways, we were just maintaining law. Um, and then uh, Thomas Babington Macaulay, who was one of the great historians of England, who published his History of England in 1848, a key year, right, the year of uh, 1848, the year of European revolutions, he argued that England had a restoring revolution in 1688 so that it wouldn't have a destroying revolution in 1848. Um, uh, so the argument was about English exceptionalism. Um, and then Macaulay's great nephew, uh, uh, George Macaulay Trevelyan, um, in the 1930s also wrote um, a book about the revolution of 1688. Um, but in his case, what we, he was trying to explain was why England n didn't have a possibility of becoming a fascist place. So he was looking at the fascist revolution, uh, the fascists coming to power in Italy, um, and the Nazis coming to power in Germany, and the fascists coming to power in Spain. And he was trying to explain why that was never going to happen in England, That why that wasn't going to happen in England, is because in England in the, in the 17th century, instead of uh, a consolidation of absolutism, um, the, you know, the gentry and aristocracy got together and decided that it was better to place limits on kings. So they had a, a the king. So they had a, uh, uh, again, a restoring revolution that prevented the possibility of a radical right-wing revolution in the 1930s. So 
Those seem like very long-term things, uh, about yeah. 100, 200 years after the Glorious Revolution, mm-hmm. at least. So you indicate in your book that one should focus on these very uh, consequences in long-term, uh, in the long-term rather than the proximate causes of the Glorious Revolution. So why is that? Right. So uh, <coughs> my point is fairly simple. Um, if you looked at the French Revolution from just 1789 to 1790, you know, you would say, yes, something happened. The Bastille was, you know, uh, uh, the Bastille fell. Um, the National Assembly was called. But between 1789 and 1790, there was no execution of the king. There was still a monarchy. You know, you would say, OK, between, you know, 1789 and 1790, some important political event happened. But, you know, is that really a revolution? Um, same thing with the Russian Revolution. I mean, obviously, something really important happened in 1917. Um but uh, between 1917 and 1918, um, you wouldn't say, I mean, it's, you know, the, there wasn't a revolutionary transformation. There was no installation of, of, of communism, right, um, uh, in that period. I mean, there, was, there were communists that were going to come to power and do lots of things, but there were also, um, you know, white Russians uh, uh, still quite active. And there were, um, you know, various people who were critics of the czar who had allied with, you know, Lenin, etc. And it wasn't clear what direction things were going to go. So my point is merely, if you just look at, if, as most scholars have, if you just look at 1688-89, yes, what happened was largely destructive. They got James to go away. And it doesn't look like anything terribly transformative happened. But if you widen the lens... Um, and even just widen the lens, I mean, most historians of the French Revolution, right, from, you know, talk about the period from 1789 until, you know, Napoleon came to power, or whatever, I mean, they, 10 or 11 years. If you widen the lens that far, then the revolution of 1688-89 looks much more revolutionary. Um, and I think the same is the case. I mean, you could think about almost any revolution or anything that we take to say is a revolution. If you narrow the lens small enough, just to sort of the immediate political events in which it's clear that the older regime is going to fall apart, things don't look so revolutionary because there's always a contest about what is going to replace it. And what what is going to replace it might be radically different mm-hmm. or it might be a small adjustment. I mean, the consensus among the political classes might be, you know, the problem with the old regime is that there were horribly corrupt leaders. Once we replace the old regime with new, nicer leaders, then everything will be, you know, wonderful. Um, um, but that's not what happened in France, right? I mean, they did all sorts of things. They got rid of, you know, uh, uh, they got rid of the church. They got rid of, uh, you know, feudal law. They got rid of uh, all sorts of things. They changed, you know, got rid of the aristocracy. I mean, there was, you know, obviously a revolutionary change. Obviously what happened in Russia is not only did they get rid of the particular czar, they got rid of the, I mean, they tried to get rid of the entire family, but they also got rid of serfdom. They got rid of, you know, all these sorts of things. They got rid of, uh, uh, and they established a, a new, whatever you want to base, I'd say it, a new basis of the organization of society. Uh, um, but that didn't happen in a year. That took place over, you know, 10 or 15 years. And some would argue that you can't really write the history of the Russian Revolution without writing, include, I mean, the Stalinism, I mean, the Russian Revolution continues through the Stalin era, which is a longer period. So all I'm saying is something very commonsensical, that um, if you narrow the lens small enough that it doesn't look like the changes are radical, Um, but if the real question is, were there radical changes over a decade or perhaps a little bit longer? Sure. So why was William chosen as a replacement for James II? Oh, well, uh, the answer to that... um, is in some ways quite simple. Um, one needs to think, um, uh, it's late 17th century Europe, there was this real perception among a lot of people in Europe that Louis XIV was on the brink of becoming the hegemonic power in Europe. Um, and Europe was largely divided between those who were allies and clients of Louis XIV and those who were his enemies. Um, um, and popular opinion in England, and indeed uh, in England and in Scotland, probably a little bit less than in Ireland, uh, was that one of the great failings of James II was is that he did nothing to oppose Louis XIV. He was, in fact, you know, perceived to be at least a, cl- a closet ally. He did. I mean, he had this big army, but he didn't use the army uh, to oppose the aggrandizements of Louis the um, Fourteenth. Uh, the one person who, um, you know, who, who had 
I mean, the, one per, the only person who'd really defeated Louis XIV in any kind of military confrontation was William of Orange. Um, so not only did he have these close political ties to England, but when Louis XIV invaded the Netherlands in 1672, yeah. William defeated him. Yeah, um, so he was a war hero. He was a war hero, and he was a potential leader, and it was clear to a lot of people um, that, uh, I mean, a lot of people really wanted England to go to war against France. Um, and we know this for a lot of reasons. I mean, we have a lot of contemporary anecdotal evidence in the 1680s of people saying, you know, what popular opinion is overwhelmingly in support of war against France. But we also know in 1678 and 1678-79, uh, um, Parliament thought that they were going to vote for a war against France, and they passed a resolution calling for war against France overwhelmingly. Um, so we know the popular opinion in England was very much uh, uh, wanting this war against France. And once you decided that you want a war against France and you need to get rid of your king because your king isn't going to lead you into that war, then you look for an obvious leader, and William was the obvious leader. And he was an obvious leader who was also happened to be married to the daughter of the King of England. So there was close... So uh, if he did have a good claim on the throne, as you say, wouldn't this support the thesis that the Glorious Revolution was more of a restoration of long-standing norms of succession? Well, he did, he did have a good claim on the throne, but he wasn't the immediate claimant on the throne. Um, uh, so, I mean, the person who had the best claim on the throne was uh, James II's infant son, uh, who was, you know, the immediate successor and that was first in the line of succession. Um, but uh, the claim, I mean, Mary, his wife, had, was, had a prior claim, and... Uh, Mary's uh, younger sister also had a prior claim. So putting William on the throne meant changing, uh, changing the line of succession, which meant that was a revolutionary act, right? I mean, so so it's true that he was somebody who had a claim on the throne, but he didn't have the immediate claim on the throne. Sure. So why don't why do you break the line of succession? Well, the only argument for breaking the line of succession is an argument to say Parliament determines who's king. Yeah. So, uh, so, uh, and you know, you could say, well, okay, they seem to be constrained. They had to go within uh, uh, that particular line. That's true, but they still got to make the choice, and they would make the choice again um, uh, uh, a little over a decade later when they passed the Act of Succession, um, which said, I mean, in seventeen oh one, which said that after Anne died, Queen Anne died, the next uh, king would be. Uh, from the Hanoverian line, um, even though uh, there were many Stuart claimants and other people who had a prior claim. So, um, what but the they were Catholic? What they were Catholic. They were Catholic. That's absolutely right. Um, uh, but but there was a clear decision that Parliament had the right to decide right. who yeah. was coming to the throne. Yeah. So, uh, what, what accounted for the great growth in England's prosperity between Elizabeth's death, 1603, and the Glorious Revolution? And how was this prosperity important to the Glorious Revolution? Right. Um, so, um, let me say, there's a lot of dispute as to why this prosperity happened. Um, but let me sort of, um, uh, I, I mean, I think it's, I th it's really important to sort of understand what actually happened. Um, up until 1620, all of Europe was enjoying a period of relative prosperity. In 16, from 1620 onwards, for lots of complicated reasons, um, most of Europe went into a fairly deep recession. Um, uh, England and the Netherlands accepted. Um, and how was this manifested in England? Um, England became much more urban. Um, people moved to towns, um, uh, which meant that, you know, there was a lot of, they could there enough grain was being grown so you could support people right. living in towns. That's not necessarily causal, of course. What? That's not necessarily causal. No, 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 no. It's not right. causal, but it means that it's it's necessary but not sufficient. That's right. right. Yeah. Um, um, uh, there was uh, a significant growth in manufacturing. So there was, um, uh, for example, um, at the beginning of the 17th century, Eng I mean, not that this is a you know absolutely vital element, but England at the beginning of the 17th century imported almost all of its glass. Um, uh, in the, by the end of the 17th century, England was a net exporter of glass. Um, and this manifested itself in everyday life that almost no, I mean, only the sort of wealthiest people, only the aristocrats had, you know, windows. Uh, yeah, uh, windows, of course. Right. But yeah. Yes, but they had windows, right? Uh, but, you know, most people didn't, right? At the beginning of the 17th century, at the end of the 17th century, 
anybody sort of uh, living in a town had windows. Um, um, uh, so there was, I mean, the, the bottom line is, is that England enjoyed an incredible period of prosperity uh, between, 16, let's just say, 1630 to 1700. There, I mean, all sorts of indicators indicated uh, uh, not only uh, significant increase in the growth domestic product, but also significant increase in the gross domestic product per capita. Um, um, so great economic growth only matched in some, uh, you know, uh, possibly uh, by what was go- what was going on in the Netherlands. Um, so why did this matter? Um, it mattered because, in fact, um, English people began to think of themselves as a commercial society, um, um, and that meant um, that they reconceived of the national interest in terms of trade, in terms of commerce in one form or another. Now, um, I mean, in the 17th century, just as much as today, people don't agree about economics. They, you know, <laughs> there are uh, violent disagreements about, about you know, what, what's the best way to achieve prosperity. Um, but one of the key things that, that I think is extremely important is that the vast majority of people wherever you stood on the political spectrum, began to conceive of the country as a trading nation, uh, which meant that um, if you were going to think about prosperity, you were going to be thinking about commerce, overseas trade in one form or another. Um, um, And that meant um, an increasing concern and awareness um, about overseas developments, right? I mean, if you if you think commerce is really important, then you're going to care about your trading partners, whoever they are, um, um, and that and that sort of filtered down uh, uh, down the social classes. And one of the manifestations, I mean, one of the things that happened over the course of the 17th century, as I said, as England became much more prosperous, this uh, circulation of political information. Uh, expanded dramatically. So um, the first newspapers were, uh, that were published in England were published in the 1620s. These were newspapers which came out like once every two or three weeks and circulated almost exclusively in London. Um, by uh, 1660, there were something like 60 different titles of newspapers published every week in England, um, many of them three times a week, and they circulated throughout the country. Um, so there was a huge expansion of political information, um, and there was a creation of new social spaces. So um, in the early 17th century, um, um, if you were interested in getting local news, you had two ways of, uh, of getting news. There were two ways of access, or two means of access. One was, you know, you could go to church on Sunday, and you would hope that your you know, minister would tell you about the important events. And, you know, sometimes they would. Um, the second way you could get information was you would find your local lord, your local aristocrat, um, and if you were on good terms with him, he might allow you to read these manuscript newsletters, of which you know maybe a hundred copies circulated throughout the country, uh, which gave you some information about political events. Um, but um, by um, by the 1650s and 1660s, a new sort of uh, uh, venue of uh, circulation of information grew up in England, the so-called coffee house. Um, uh, and there were the first coffee house opened in England in, 16, uh, in 1652. It actually opened in Oxford. Um, but coffee houses became all the rage. Um, I mean, something like the Starbucks phenomenon here. Uh, so to give you an idea, the first, uh, by, by 1700, there were about 3,000 coffee houses in London alone. Um, but every town, uh, you know, with any size, had its own coffee house. And in these coffee houses, the, these coffee houses, um, people would, would distribute, um, uh, I mean, the newspapers were sort of laid on the table, tables for people to read, um, but also, you know, uh, controversial pamphlets, which are sort of political opinion pieces, would also be there. Um, so you could get all sorts of political information without having to go to your local lord, without having to hope that your you know, local minister would say something. You could just read. And as I said, these news, there would be almost, I mean, every day a week, every day of the week, a different newspaper would be published. So it would be, yeah. I mean, they had different points of view. You wouldn't get the same sort of information. But you, there's all sorts of political information that was available. What were the Anglo-Dutch Wars? Um, so um, the English and Dutch fought um, three wars um, between uh, 1652 and uh, 1674. Um, uh, and the wars were um, 
extremely important in a variety of ways, um, but they were radically different wars. So the first war was fought after the began after the execution of Charles I when England was a republic. Um, and under what uh, a republic under well at this point it was it was just a republic. Oliver Cromwell um, became Lord Protector in 1654, but the war started in 1652 when it was just a republic. There was no head; it was ruled by the Rump Parliament. That's what it was called. Um, um, and uh, initially, what the English had wanted, um, they proposed an amalgamation of the Dutch Republic um, and England um, and Scotland on the grounds that these were Protestant republics, um, mm-hmm. and that they should get together, join into one big republic, and attack Spain. Um, uh, the Dutch rejected this. The Dutch rejected this for two reasons. One was... Um, um, uh, the Netherlands was divided between a monarchist party, the so-called Orangists, um, and a Republican party, the so-called Ludwigsteiners. Um, and the monarchists were not in favor of amalgamation with the Republic. Um, secondly, they um, rejected it because they pointed out that they were merely an alliance themselves, a confederation themselves, of seven provinces, so they couldn't have a centralized republic. Of course, they had only recently nominally gained their independence, correct? That's right. So in 1648, they formally gained independence. So this would be just four years later. That's right. So So they might also say, well, we just gained independence. We don't want to lose it. Right. We don't want to be subjugated to it. Yes. I mean, that that was, I'm sure there was was something of that. Anyway, um, uh, the English um, were extremely upset, and they were also believed that um, the monarchists in the Dutch Republic were, were harboring the remnants of uh, the Stuart family and a lot of royalists, which they were. Um, for so complicated reasons, they went to war. Uh, the English um, won the war. And uh, uh, Oliver Cromwell, as Lord Protector, when he became Lord Protector, almost immediately made a peace with the Dutch. And importantly, and this sort of gets at what the cause of the war was, the, the biggest element of the peace treaty was the so-called act of seclusion that the House of Orange could no longer become stadtholders or leaders of the Dutch Republic. So it was an anti-monarchist um, peace. Um, and the Dutch and the English did make an alliance, and in 1655 they did go to war with Spain. Um, so that was another sort of consequence. Then, after the restoration of the monarchy in 1660, um, Charles II um, believed uh, correctly, that the Dutch were a republic, um, a, Dutch, a republic that had made an alliance with the people who had killed his father. Uh, he was extremely concerned uh, that also the Dutch were harboring rebels or regicides, as he called them, people who had killed his father. Um, and um, he was convinced that Dutch commercial activity, or Dutch commerce, was the greatest threat to England. I mean, you'll recall what I said before, is the only two countries in Europe... Which were doing well. ...were doing well, were the Dutch and the English. So so, uh, Charles believed um, that the Dutch were the greatest threat. Um, um, So it seems like a very strange view to have by a normal trade theory. Right. So, yeah, why do you think he had that view? Um, Well, I mean, he sort of... So he believed that... um, I mean, very simply, I mean, there was a big debate in the seven, in 17th century in England, but elsewhere in Europe, um, about whether um, the economic pie was finite or potentially infinite. Sure. So Charles subscribed to the notion that it was finite. Um, so if it, it, basically the amount of wealth in the world was determined, was in some sort of very standard ratio to the amount of land in the world. So whatever one country got, the other country lost. So sort of a mercantilist. Uh, that, right, so yeah. that was kind of a mercantilist view. Yeah. And opposed to that, there were a lot of people who said, no, 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 that's kind of a crazy idea. In fact, um, uh, prosperity is based on human labor, on human productivity. Um, and there's no reason to believe that, you know, yes, we and the Dutch have done very well economically, but there's no reason to believe that there's some kind of uh, uh, necessary zero-sum game going on here. In yeah. fact... Um, we do different things, we can both prosper. Um, 
Um, any, in any event, that was the view that Charles II had. He went to war with the Dutch, um, and the war ended badly. The Dutch ended up um, burning the entire uh, the English Navy. We're one of the worst uh, English naval defeats in history. That's right. right. I mean, it was yeah, the, except yeah. except I mean, the great the great thing that the English gained from the war. So they lost the war. They lost badly. The uh, the Dutch burnt all the ships in the midway. Except at the peace, the English were able to keep their one sort of substantial territorial acquisition of the war, New Netherland, which became New York. Yeah. Um, <laughs> then the Third Anglo-Dutch War was a much uh, uh, very similar causes, very similar arguments for war. Uh, war in the English case, except in this case, there was a clear alliance with Louis the um, Fourteenth. Uh, so England was allied with the French to try to wipe out the Netherlands, um, and the English lost the naval war, and the French lost the land war. Um, so the Dutch survived. All right, so you make many references to the popularity which William enjoyed amongst the English people. Right. How did Englishmen at the time, though, overcome the animosity left over from these Anglo-Dutch wars and place the Prince of Orange on the throne? Right. Well, as I said, the not, I mean, just, uh, um, you know, this country was very divided over the Vietnam War, right? Some people were for it, some people were against it. Sir. Sure. Uh, but the the glorious revolution seems like a case where at least almost right. everybody must have been for it, right? Right. Well, I mean, a lot of people were, but but it, but interestingly, so I mean, the point that I was trying to make about the Anglo-Dutch wars is that a lot of people were opposed to those wars, and certainly the Third Anglo-Dutch War was incredibly unpopular, um, and it had the effect of both um, uh, creating a virtual consensus among. Not complete consensus, there were always a few outliers, but the vast majority of people at the end of the Third Anglo-Dutch War in England thought they had fought the wrong enemy. The real enemy was France, not the Netherlands. And so there was this kind of view that William was a hero. William had protected uh, the Netherlands from a French invasion. Um, uh, so there was widespread popular sentiment in favor of that. Um, and, uh, you know, at the time of the revolution, yes, uh, William was incredibly popular. There was real support for uh, William and, and for the Dutch as people who would fight against the French. Um, and there was a real hope for a French war. Now, that said, it wasn't everybody, right? I mean, James had successfully built up a lot of state apparatus that some people liked. Um, he had, you know, clearly built up a professional army. I mean, the, the English army under James was bigger than it had ever been before. It was more professional. It was well-trained. Many people thought this was a good thing that, you know, England was finally getting with it. I mean, joining the continent and doing this. Um, uh, and he'd also um, regularized the, I mean, he'd made the collection of taxes more efficient, but he regularized them. So in the, and before James came to the throne, um, if, I asked you, if, if you were asked to pay, uh, let's say to pay um, a typical tax that one, one might pay, let's say you were asked to pay customs in, a, in the port of Bristol, um, um, the person who would collect the customs revenue from you would be another fellow merchant. Um, and, you know, if you were a friend of that merchant, you were probably, you know, he would look the other way and say, oh, well, you don't really have that much stuff to pay uh, to pay." Customs on. We know you didn't import very much last year. Um, but if you were his enemy and somebody who we thought it was a rival in trade, then your chances were that you were going to be taxed incredibly heavily. What James did was he regularized collection. I mean, he would, you know, uh, collection. I mean, so before the amount, the percentage of customs rates was, was published, but it was all local people collecting it. What James did is he had this sort of national administration where people, you were never going to be a tax collector in a town where you were from, and you would never stay in a town more than two years, so you would move around. Um, so a lot of people liked that. They thought, well, this is fair, right? I mean, it's a fair way to, I mean, you know, we don't like taxes, right? But if we're going to be pay taxes, we want to have a feeling like, you know, we're all play, paying on a level playing field. Um, so James did have support. Um, and he clearly had support from Catholics um, uh, in a variety of ways. So, I mean, my own view, just a sort of rough estimate, is that maybe a third of the country remained loyal to James um, in, in 1688. Um, mm -hmm. But one still needs to explain why two-thirds of the country didn't. And I think what I was trying to tell you before is that is that I think the result, the consequence of the Third Anglo-Dutch War, the shift in popular opinion, people were overwhelmingly calling for a war against France, and they thought William would do that. Yeah. Of course, most of the loyalists were not loyal enough to fight for him. <laughs> right. Well, some did, but most didn't, right? And, and you know, part of it was James's own strategy, right? I mean, James, um, 
um, I mean, there were fights. There was, you know, some violence on the streets of, uh, of England, and I tried to sort of document that to some degree. But I think it's really important to know that James made a conscious decision um, that the way to defeat William was in alliance with Louis XIV, with his army at his back. Um, and that's why, instead of fighting in England without Louis XIV's army, because Louis XIV was actually fighting a war on the Rhine, at the time, he couldn't have his army there. His idea was to retreat and eventually regroup in Ireland, which he did, and then have Louis XIV's forces to go join him, which they did. Um, and that's why between 1689 and 1691, um, there was a great battle between William's forces and James's forces in Ireland. James's forces, and James then had, you know, all of his military advisors were French. There was a significant French force behind him, and William defeated him at the you know decisively at the Battle of the Boyne. So, to what extent did English mercantilism still strong during much of the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries sour Anglo-Dutch relations? Right. So, I, I you know I don't think um, um, uh, what I'm trying to say is that I think mercantilism is too sloppy of a shorthand. Um, mm-hmm. um, in the sense that when we talk about mercantilism, most most scholars who talk about mercantilism talk as if there was a period of mercantilism which precedes an era of free trade. Free trade, you know, the crude thing is, you know, with the publication of Adam Smith's Wealth of Nation, that begins the era of free trade. In fact, um, uh, it strikes me that there was a, a, a radical split in political economic theorizing. Some people, and I think it's fair to characterize Charles II's ideas as very mercantilist, I mean, as we talked about them, but I think his opponents, his political opponents, had a very different, and John Locke is an important one from a a political economic point of view. (coughs) His opponents argued, so um, Charles II, and increasingly the sort of Tories, argued um, the amount of property in the world is finite, um, in the particular English case, because they were never going to be a major European territorial power, its future lay in gaining colonies overseas, uh, territories overseas, uh, North America, the West Indies, possibly India. Um, that was their view. Um, uh, the Their political opponents, uh, mostly the Whigs, argued no, uh, uh, property is not finite. Property, the, the uh, England's future lay in manufacturing. Um, uh, putting labor to work to make things, textiles in the first instance, but already they were beginning to manufacture other things, as I said, glass, uh, uh, various forms of metals, etc., etc. And their view was that the natural enemy of England was not the Dutch, who, I mean, from the, you know, from Charles II's point of view, um, he, he saw the Dutch as their competitors for empire in uh, I mean, one needs to remember that the Dutch had an empire in, East, uh, in the east, in Indonesia, yeah. based in what's, you know, Batavia, what's now Jakarta, um, and that they were, you know, they had uh, New Netherland, they had a base in Suriname, Curaçao, etc., etc., and they had held much of Brazil until, 16, until the 1650s. Um, um, that was Charles II's view. Um, the Whigs and the Tories' point of view, James II and the Tories' point of view, um, the Whig point of view um, was that no... The natural enemy was France seeking territorial empire in Europe and also passing, making it impossible to export English manufactured goods onto the continent, setting all these tariff barriers. So their point of view, and so in that sense, they were free traders of all la lettre. I mean, that is to say, they wanted open markets. Now, they didn't believe that markets worked by themselves, but they were moving in that sort of direction. Um, um, so that's why I say mercantilism is a little bit too simple. I think that there was a, a struggle between in England between mercantilists and anti-mercantilists, if you will, and I just call them Whigs and Tories, so those people right. who have a well, finite and infinite, yeah. infinite view of property. Both seem heavily associated with, uh, again, being against France or being against the Netherlands, though, right? Right, that's right. So, so they're that, associated with, they're associated, yeah. right. I mean, so, um, so those who believe the property was finite tended to be overwhelmingly anti-Dutch. Those who thought f- property was f- potentially infinite were overwhelmingly anti-French. Yeah. So as to which one causes the other... Uh, 
which 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 one caused the other is an interesting question. It seems to me like you're saying that the fact that you thought that it, it was finite meant that you would dislike the Dutch. Right. Right. Sure. You know, and I think that that's true. I mean, you know, I think I mean if you think of any sort of political association, I mean any group, um, um, Republicans and Democrats today, right? You might say for some Republicans, the primary issue is religious. At some form or another, um, uh, you for other Republicans though clearly the most important issue is economic, right? I mean, there's clearly certain economic issues which are to the fore. Um, um, so I don't think just saying. I mean, it's sometimes and sometimes it's very difficult. You know, there are foreign. I mean, there's a third group of people who have foreign policy issues that are to the fore. Um, so, and the same thing for Democrats. That is to say, it's very difficult to say. I mean. You can say, you know, in the voting booth, this person's a Democrat and this person's a Republican. But when you scratch a bit, um, Democrats, groups of Democrats and different groups of Republicans have different priorities among the various things. And I think um, uh, in the 17th century, this, the same things, you know, some people uh, were, you know, vitriolically, viciously anti-Dutch and then they came to their economic principles. Others began with the economic principles and said, well, if that's my reasoning, then I'm not going to like the Dutch. Um, uh, far simpler question. Could William III speak English? Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. So he, um, uh, we know he could speak English um, um, uh, from a fairly early age. I mean, when he, when he came over to England in the 1670s to woo Mary, um, married uh, 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 we know that he was perfectly happy I mean speaking in English I mean English was his third language his first language the language that he was taught from a kid as a kid was French um, uh, and you know today, right? right exactly and so you know when, when left to his own devices uh, he would mostly he was very comfortable writing letters in French second language was Dutch and his third language was English so could he speak unaccented English? Or? It wasn't unaccented. Okay, no, so, I'm from, so you could end. definitely tell. Oh yes, you yeah. could definitely tell he was a foreigner. Yes, absolutely. All right. Okay, so you say, quote, men and women all over the English-speaking world once knew that what happened in England's revolution of 1688 to 1689, in your book, 1688. So at least by one estimate, however, the illiteracy rate in England remained uh, well above 50% until about 1725. So how did the rest of the English population receive an education about the events of 1688? Could there have been large numbers of rural farmers, say, who knew nothing or close to it? Yeah. So, no, I mean, so it's, it's absolutely true that, you know, illiteracy was relatively high. But a lot of stuff, so, I mean, when I talked about the coffee houses, a lot of people would get news in the coffee house. I mean, so what happened in a coffee house was that uh, frequently somebody would stand up and read from the newspapers of the day. So there was a sort of widespread kind of oral culture. It's certainly true um, that it's po it probably was possible to find somebody, you know, on the Silly Isles or uh, in the you know west of England or, you know, in the Outer Hebrides who wouldn't have heard of these things. But the vast majority of people heard by word of mouth. There were ballads which were sung, uh, many popular ballads which were written at the time. Uh, there was, as I said, the sort of stuff that was read out loud. People would have heard in sermons and churches about these events. So, no, um, the, the political culture was much, much broader and much more inclusive than just the literacy rates. Um, yeah. um, so, you know, Obviously, um, you know, and I think, I mean, we talk about this incredibly polarized country that we have right now, but, and, you know, I think that's true, but it's also true that, you know, some people have deeply held beliefs, but don't read the newspaper every day. And some people, you know, read five newspapers every day, right? And so there's different levels of the ways in which um, <coughs> both the person who reads five newspapers a day and the one who Reach no newspaper a day might have strongly held political convictions, but it's based on different levels of political information. And my point is, is that in the 17th century, um, <coughs> you didn't have to be able to read to be able to find out about political events and to have strong opinions. All right. What was the total body count for the Glorious Revolution? Was it anywhere near the number for the French Revolution? Well, it depends how you count. Sure. Uh, um, right. I mean, so most people, when they talk about the numbers of people killed in the French Revolution, talk, include the people killed in the Napoleonic Wars. Sure. Right. That's Which, true. But uh, so like, would, would you do the same for the Nine well, Years' Well, I mean, war so if you or... included the Nine Years' War and the War of the Spanish Succession, mm -hmm. which is about the same period of time, mm -hmm. 
as a percentage of the population, it looks fairly similar. Um, um, uh, you know, and I point out in the book, um, um, look, part of the illusion that 1688 was bloodless has to do with some of the rhetoric of that subsequent scholars had. So, um, you know, one of the seminal events, the key events in the uh, French Revolution is the massacre at the Champ de Mars, right? Uh, the, um, I forgot what number were killed, but it was like 20, right? Um, uh, there was a battle in the streets of, of Redding, which killed about 58 people, which is known in the historiography as the incident at Wincanton. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, one's a massacre, one's an incident. Um, uh, so I think it's, it's a bit rhetorical. And I think, I think our notion that 1688 was bloodless um, is an artifact of this notion that English, England was exceptional. It had an unrevolutionary revolution. So, of course, it had to be bloodless. Um, and, you know, the reality is that the bloodiness of the French Revolution was twofold. One was the shock that of the guillotine and executing the aristocrats, right, and, and the king, right. But in terms of body count, the number was relatively small. It was just these were very prominent people that nobody thought this, you know, a state, any state would put to death. Um, but, um, uh, you know, and, and in the sense, if you want to consider the execution of the Jacobites in the 1690s, that looks fairly similar. It's just the only difference is um, that they were rebelling at the time. Um, um, well, the French Revolutionary certainly killed many rebellious subjects. Absolutely. No, 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 absolutely. And then, yes, no, exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, and so in that sense, I think it's quite, it's quite similar. Now, of course, the absolute numbers killed in the French Revolution and in the French Revolutionary Wars are larger, but that's because the population of Europe and, you know, at the time was significantly right. higher. Although, of course, France would have had a much higher population than England. So Already in the that. 17th century. Yeah, that's so, right. Yeah. right. You would so say that's not obviously not uh, as bloody to kill like 10% of the population of England versus 10% of right, France. Right, right, because yeah. it's obviously the absolute numbers yeah. are smaller. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Important yeah. note. All right, so do you see the Glorious Revolution as a principally secular or religious affair? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a principally, uh, it's a secular affair. Um, and I'll tell you why. I mean, obviously on its face, right? I mean, England replaced the Catholic king with the Protestant king and queen. Um, but the reality was um, that most of the people who defended the revolution said, we didn't get rid of James because he was a Catholic. We got rid of James because he violated English laws, because he didn't pursue the foreign policy that we wanted him to do, and because he was pursuing misguided economic policies. Well, you could say, well, why was that? Because he was Catholic. He didn't want to well, attack right. Louis Fourteenth because he was right. a Catholic. Yeah, right? I mean, that's certainly true. But if it was a religious revolution, um, you would not expect two of the key allies that, I mean, so... William immediately made an alliance with two powers right after the revolution. I mean, obviously with the Netherlands, right? But that was, you know, yeah. he made an alliance with the King of Spain and the Holy Roman Emperor, both leading Catholic powers, which is, you know, hard to reconcile with seeing this as a religious revolution. What, what the King of Spain and the Holy Roman Emperor had in common was they were extremely concerned about the growing power of Louis XIV. Um, um, so in that sense, and, and I also think... Yeah, I mean, one of the other key events of the revolution of 1688-89 was the passing of the Toleration Act, um, uh, which gave religious toleration. Now, it's true that there were limitations placed on... It was mostly simply for other Protestants. It was mostly for other Protestants, but it turns out that the number... I mean, it turns out that from 1689 onwards, Catholics... I mean, in the 17th century, Catholics were absolutely um, proscribed in a variety of areas. There were frequent attempts to round up Catholics, uh, uh, to send them to prison, etc. That didn't happen after 1689. And in fact, there was a real effort by William to protect Catholics uh, in a variety in a variety of ways. So certainly a number of the examples of violence you use in England refer specifically to simply acts of violence against the Catholic churches, Catholic parishioners, etc. So is it possible that like a good number of simply the English lower classes, especially, were simply mad about the religion, while the elites mostly were mostly apathetic? Sure, I think that's a possibility. Although, I mean, as I pointed out in the book, most of the attacks on Catholic churches were churches that were illegally constructed. Um, uh, so, so what ended up happening, um, 
under uh, it was illegal to bu- to build a Catholic church. It was illegal to build to build Catholic schools, and James just sort of allowed them uh, to do it. Um, and uh, interestingly, um, a lot, you know, these were the it was these illegal edifices that tended to be attacked. Um, and there were when the attacks happened against Catholic individuals, they tended to be people closely associated uh, with James, that is to say, uh, in, a variety, in a variety of ways. Whereas in a lot, large parts of the country, Catholics who had nothing to do with the regime were let off scot-free. And interestingly, um, a lot of the school teachers, those Catholic school teachers who were brought into England by James, stayed after the revolution and continued to teach. They just didn't teach in illegally constructed schools. Mm-hmm. All right, so what was the Monmouth Rebellion? The Monmouth Rebellion happened in 1685. So uh, uh, Charles II uh, was a man of many mistresses, uh, yeah. uh, um, and um, uh, the Duke of Monmouth was one of his illegitimate sons, yep. also called James. Uh, um, and James, who, James was the eldest surviving illegitimate son of, of Charles II, and Monmouth argued um, that because he was a Protestant and Catholics couldn't be king of kings of England, that he was a legitimate king. Um, and he uh, led a rebellion on largely religious grounds in 1685, um, and it didn't get off the ground. Yes. Um, I mean, it did get off the ground that, that a rebellion yeah. happened, but there, were, there wasn't a huge amount of support. Um, James, uh, in alliance with a lot of the Protestant uh, noblemen, uh, a, a lot of the Protestant gentry wiped out the rebellion uh, at the Battle of Sedgemoor. So it was it was wiped out. And one of the points I try to make about Monmouth's rebellion is um, this shows that a purely religious rebellion couldn't overthrow James. That yes, there were some people who were sort of vitriolically anti-Catholic, and those are the people who rebelled. But there weren't a lot of. I mean, there wasn't a lot of popular support for that. Well, it certainly might have had a chance of working, but uh, yes. yeah, maybe he just got unlucky, right? Well, it's possible <laughs> that he got unlucky, but it, but it, well, the interesting thing is, is that when William arrived on November 5th and 6th of 1688, even before he arrived, there were something like 20,000 people in arms throughout the country, rebel, popular uh, uprisings against James. Um, yeah. Um, uh, and... Uh, and those seem to be motivated by political issues with people across the country from different religious backgrounds, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, whereas, uh, and, you know, the declaration that William sent over before he arrived said nothing about, uh, you know, where I'm not overthrowing James because he's a Catholic. I'm overthrowing him because he's a tyrannical king um, uh, and he's violated the laws of England. Monmouth's declaration, which he circulated before, emphasized that, James was illegitimate because he was Catholic. Mm-hmm. And that's where, you know, you only have three or 4,000 people uh, joining him after the fact. And so why was the Monmouth Rebellion a failure, while the Glorious Revolution a success? I think it was a failure because it saw itself as a narrowly religious event. Whereas so that the was rep- the primary yeah. reason. So too yeah. narrowly religious. Doesn't have fair. mass appeal. Didn't have mass appeal. It didn't, I mean, I think what gave William... And uh, mass appeal in 1688 was that there were a whole range of grievances uh, that he could speak to. All right, so Parliament certainly stopped uh, Charles II from aiding the French during the Franco-Dutch War. And indeed, it even obliged him to offer the Dutch assistance during the same conflict. Right. So wouldn't it have been the case that James II would have ultimately had to bow to a similar Francophobia in his foreign policy? Well, yes and no. Um if he'd been forced to reckon with Parliament, I think that that's true. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the interesting things is that um, because of the prosperity of the colonies, uh, uh, remember Barbados has already been producing sugar for a good amount of time, yeah. Jamaica started producing sugar, and the customs revenues were going significantly going up, James was in a fairly confident, and he told the French ambassador this, I don't think I'm ever going to have to call Parliament again. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what he said in the summer of 1688. Now, you know, in the face of William's invasion, he did call Parliament, mm-hmm. but that was trying to get parliamentary support to oppose William. Um, um, so <coughs> I think I think there was a huge amount of popular francophobia. It's not clear 
that James would have had to bow to it unless he had to call Parliament. And and the only reason why he would have had to call Parliament is if he needed money. So why were the Jacobite uprisings unsuccessful? Um, so um, they were unsuccessful for a number of reasons. Um, uh, they were unsuccessful because I think um, a very small percentage of the population, uh, you know, as I said, I mean, 30% at most, um, uh, even in 1689, were really loyal to James. I think after the Williams victories and the uh, such as they were in the Nine Years' War, after the defeat of James and the Battle of the Boyne, um, but also after the successful creation of the Bank of England in 1694, um, uh, the sort of growing commercial prosperity of England. So even you know of those. 30% of people who might have been Jacobites to begin, begin with, once the regime had stabilized, once it was sort of uh, delivering on some level of prosperity, I think even that support that support was probably cut in half, um, which made it less and less likely that there was going to be <coughs> a successful Jacobite rebellion. And it's important to realize that the biggest Jacobite rebellions, 1715 and 1745, took place in Scotland, and it's arguable that both of those rebellions were less motivated by trying to restore the House of Stuart um, or uh, Catholicism, and probably more about feeling the Scots feeling like they got a bad deal in the Union of 1707. All right, so, well, you indicate that the number of defectors from James' <coughs> Union in 1688 was quite small. Most of the defectors themselves were primarily officers. So, could the strain on his military leadership have weakened aims by more than the small number of total defections might suggest at first? Maybe we see this, for example, during the Winter War. Standard's theory about why Stalin took so long to win was just that he had killed all of his officers, so he had right. no good leadership. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it is true that he was weakened by, um, you know, certainly the defection of, of John Churchill, uh, the Duke of, uh, the future Duke of Marlborough. Um, I mean, he was a major major officer, um, <coughs> but <coughs> it's also the case. Um, sorry. Um, it's also the case that he had a lot of military officers. I mean, it wasn't like, I mean, Stalin had killed off, uh, 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 you know. Almost um, everyone. Yeah, <laughs> almost everyone. Yeah. I mean, James had a few defections, and they were important defections, and I think it probably caused him, but, you know, uh, to, re to recalibrate a bit. But he still had most of his officers with him. And yeah. some of them, I mean, uh, and, you know, when he actually fought William at the Boyne, he had not only all of his officers with him, he also had French officers, and then the Earl of Torconnell, who was unable to get back to England, uh, who was perhaps his most loyal officer, perhaps the most brilliant military man on his side of the conflict. So you draw many parallels between the French Revolution and the Glorious Revolution, and what, but what do you see as the chief differences between the two? Um, well, um, I mean, one obvious difference is that uh, the French Revolution ended with, I mean, ended twice, right? I mean, it ended with Napoleon asserting power and then with the restoration of the, of the monarchy. Um, uh, the Glorious Revolution, you know, in many ways established a regime, <coughs> sorry, um, that, you know, stayed in power, I mean, to this day, right? I mean, so... Um, Much more stable. Mm. So in that sense, that that was a big difference. Um, I think um, um, the I mean one of the other big differences is that um, unlike in France, um, England had had uh, a civil war in the middle of the seventeenth century, which initiated a bunch of changes. Some of which were reversed with the restoration of the monarchy, but some of the things had changed permanently. Um, so, I mean, when I talked about uh, the circulation of political information, right, it was during the Civil War that it was an explosion of newspaper publication. And they were constrained to some degree after the Restoration, but still the sort of taste for news, the circulation of political information continued. Um, so there was less of a sense, I mean, I think there was a sense of, um, in later 17th century England, I think a lot of people sort of thought England could go in one of two different directions, the one direction 
represented by James II, the one represented by William. Um, um, but I think I think there was sort of a clear sense of a variety of paths. Whereas in France, um, I don't think in 1789 in France, many people could imagine, you know, the rule of Jacobin, um, Thermidor, Napoleon coming to power. It was, I mean, these things happened. Uh, and, you know, I mean, Robespierre was obviously a key figure in the National Assembly in 1789, but I don't think anybody knew that he was going to grow to be as powerful as he did. Whereas and I think... And What? And then lose it all. Well, and then lose it all, right. I mean, absolutely. Whereas I think I think in, in, in England in the 1680s and 1690s, there were a clear set of choices that were fairly well defined because this debate had started already in the 1640s and 1650s. And I think that that... That's precisely why the revolutionary changes were long-lasting in a variety of ways. I think there was a sort of conscious set of choices which happened for the majority of the population. Whereas I think, to some degree, I mean, I think, look, I don't, I don't mean to undervalue the kind of um, democratic instincts of some people in the French Revolution. I don't mean to undervalue the real commitment to terror of some people among the Jacobin. I think all of that is true. I mean, both the good and the bad. Um, but I think it would have been very difficult in 1789 to predict any of those sorts of outcomes. Whereas I think in 1689, it was pretty clear to a lot of people what the choices they were making were. Mm -hmm. So much less chaotic. Well, I think, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think chaotic or, I mean, revolutionary and transformative, yes. Chaotic, no, and I think uh, in the sense that I think the, the, the contours of the choices to, to at least most of the political actors were pretty clear. All right, counterfactual history question for you. What would have happened had James won the Glorious Revolution? Well, I think had James uh, won the Glorious Revolution, um, I think uh, James would have basically conceded the continent of Europe to Louis XIV. Um, I think James would have completely reoriented England away from Europe um, towards uh, overseas colonies uh, in, a, in a variety of ways. I also think there would have been much less... I mean, one of the, the key political economic consequences of the Glorious Revolution, in my view, is the creation of the Bank of England, the, uh, the creation of a credit market that was going to support the manufacturing sector. I think it is much less likely that England would have become the first industrial nation uh, because I think the Bank of England was absolutely central to that. Um, uh, and I think the commitment of the English people to being a manufacturing society was, was central to the, to the revolution. So I think... England would have become a very different kind of place. I think, you know, uh, uh, I mean, when I say it wouldn't have been the first industrial nation, I'm not, you know, willing to say it never would have industrialized, but I don't think it would have been the leader. All right, so just one last question. What will your next research focus be on? Right, well, I'm uh, trying to finish, uh, uh, I told my, my agent this uh, today, I was going to finish... Um, uh, uh, by sometime in uh, two, uh, the beginning, well, what is it? Uh, this is 2018, 2019. By the middle of 2020, I'm going to finish this book, which I've been writing for a while now, called The Global British Empire, which looks at the history of the British Empire, really, from the middle of the 17th century to 1784. So it looks at um, uh, both the American Revolution and the creation of the British Empire in India. Sounds like some interesting stuff. Well, thanks for listening. This is Stellar of the History Twins podcast. Uh, thanks very much, Professor Pincus, for agreeing to be here today. Uh, there will be another next month, also available on iTunes and SoundCloud. Uh, until next time, I'm Aiden Kaplan. And I'm Tristan Kaplan. And together we, we are, are History Twins. Twins.